0: Well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11? As we come to Matthew 11, we enter into a new section in Matthew's Gospel. You know, by this point, all the evidence has been presented. John the Baptist has introduced the king to the nation. Jesus, well, he's revealed his person, his principles. And his power. All this took place in the first ten chapters of Matthew's Gospel. And that was really up to the leaders of the nation to decide what they're going to do with Jesus. Like we all have to decide at one point in our lives. It all comes down to what are you going to do with Jesus. And that was their time. What were they going to do with Jesus? They had to make a decision. But instead of receiving him as their king, they began to rebel against him. Starting with the rejection of his messenger, as we're going to see in verses 7 to 19. Now, the chapter opens up in kind of an odd way, which we looked at last time. We've called verses 1 through 6, we've titled it, John Questions Jesus' Messiahship. And uh, you need to get the CD from last week if you weren't here, because we did deal uh, with I think a rather important uh, subject, and that is when you're going through a severe trial, The devil wants to hammer you with doubts. And when you start to doubt, sometimes God's wisdom and maybe his love, then he hammers you with guilt for that. And we talked about that, how Jesus handled John's doubts, and we uh, wanted to spend a little extra time on those first six verses. So get the CD if you weren't here. I think it's important to go back and uh, to cover that. But verses 1 through 6... John questions Jesus' messiahship. Now, verses 7 to 19, Jesus confirms John's ministry. The word confirm means to give approval, to ratify, to make firm or firmer. In other words, if anyone had any doubts about the validity of John's ministry, I mean, if anyone doubted that John was indeed the one that was prophesied about who would precede the Messiah's coming and introduce him to the nation, Well, Jesus is about to put those doubts to rest right now. And why was that so important? You might be thinking, why was it so important for Jesus to come to John's defense? Why was it so important for Jesus to confirm John's ministry? Well, it was important because for Jesus to validate John's ministry, indirectly validated his own. You see, as we're going to see in just a moment, the prophets have prophesied that before Messiah came, God would send a forerunner a herald to announce His coming. If John was not that herald, then Jesus had no herald. Therefore, He couldn't be the Messiah. So obviously, it was important that Jesus came to John's defense if He was going to validate His own ministry in their minds. And let's go ahead and see how the Lord does this in this passage. He tells us, first of all, that John's ministry was conducted in the right context. Verse 7. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. And the key word there, folks, is wilderness. You see, Isaiah the prophet had prophesied that God would send, as I said, a forerunner into the wilderness of Israel who would announce the Messiah's coming. We read in Isaiah 40, verse 3, as God is prophesying through Isaiah about this very individual, John the Baptist, he calls him the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John conducted his ministry in a place, or in the place, prophesied. In other words, the context of John's ministry was one of the things that pointed to who he was. And I think that Jesus is basically... Trying to impress upon the multitudes, he's trying to challenge them to reason this out. You know, as God says in Isaiah 1, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Jesus is saying to them, look, let's think about this for a minute, alright? You know that scripture in Isaiah that foretold that the Messiah's messenger would conduct his ministry in the wilderness, calling the nation to repentance and preparation for them then to receive the Messiah at his coming. I mean, Jesus is saying, you know, you're, you, you got excited when you heard there was a prophet in the wilderness. Why? Because you knew that Scripture out of Isaiah. And you knew that for a prophet to be prophesying in the Prophets didn't prophesy in the wilderness, folks. This was unusual. I mean, there hadn't been a prophet for 400 years anyway since the end of the Old Testament period. But here comes one, and he's not prophesying in the city where the people live. That would have been common. Here's a guy out in the wilderness. I mean, who shows up in the wilderness to conduct their ministry and people come to them? Well, the forerunner of Messiah. And Jesus was saying, Look, when you heard there was a prophet in the wilderness calling people to repentance, you got excited, didn't you? So excited that you were willing to leave your homes and make that journey out into the wilderness to see John because you knew that when the herald of the Messiah showed up, he would be ministering in the wilderness. She certainly didn't go down there to see some reeds shaking in the wind. I mean, the reeds were very common along the Jordan River where John the Baptist was baptizing. And Jesus said, Look, you know, you went out there for a reason. You didn't go out there to see some reeds shaking in the wind there. Jewish history tells us that at this time, okay, at this time we're studying, The excitement and anticipation of Messiah's coming was at an all-time high, no doubt fueled by the prophecy of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. Because five and a half centuries earlier, six centuries by this time actually, God had spoken to Daniel through the angel giving him a very important prophecy. The angel said that from the time the commandment would go forth to rebuild and restore the walls of Jerusalem, start counting because 483 years later, Messiah would come. Well, the Jews knew that that decree went out from Artaxerxes to Nehemiah on March 14, 445 B.C. A Jewish month is 30 days. And so you have 483 years made up of 12 30-day months. That's 173,880 days. You add those days on to March 14, 445 B.C., it brings you out to April 6, 32 A.D., the day we know as Palm Sunday. So Jesus Christ fulfilled that prophecy. Now, of course, the average person it didn't have the, you know, all the wherewithal to map it out exactly, because there's stuff you had to adjust for, and so, but they knew the general time. And they knew this was the general time for Messiah to come. They also knew the prophecy that said someone would come before him and announce his coming was near. So when they heard John was in the wilderness, man, they ran down there to see John. Because they said, look, if the forerunner of Messiah is here, there's got to be a Messiah runner somewhere. So, first of all, John ministered in the right context, which confirmed his ministry. Secondly, John wore the right clothes. You say, what are you talking about? Well, Jesus brings it out in verse 8. I mean, I'm, not just, I'm just going by what the passage says. Jesus said to them, What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothes are in king's houses. Obviously, he's implying the opposite. You went out to see a guy dressed in very rugged, rough clothes. Why was that significant? Because in the Old Testament, guys, a prophet was known by what he wore. In fact, we read of Elijah that Elijah wore a very rugged outfit made of camel's hair, kind of like burlap. And the prophets would wear clothes like this. Why? Because they were usually calling the nation to repentance. And when you were calling the nation to repentance, you yourself were in a state of mourning over the condition of the nation. So you didn't wear anything soft and luxurious and comfortable. You wanted to mourn and so they would put on rugged clothes that irritated the skin. John came, we read in Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, when John showed up, he was clothed in camel's hair, right? Wore a leather belt. His food was locusts and wild honey. Hey, he lived in the wilderness. John was the guy that, that had foregone all of the uh, creature comforts. Because his was not a comfortable life. His was a life devoted to God. A life of mourning, calling the nation of Israel to repentance. And Jesus said, look, you went out there to see John as he was wearing the clothes of a prophet. That's another sign that God had called John to be a prophet. Again, I just hear the Lord Jesus Christ reasoning with these people and basically saying, look, you you know why you went out into the wilderness to see John. Not only was he ministering in the right place, but he was wearing the right clothes. The clothes of a prophet. And you certainly didn't go out there to see one of the king's yes men, you know, those guys that wear soft robes and uh, live in the king's court. You went out there to see a fiery prophet who was no man pleaser, but was a person who was speaking on behalf of God. So Jesus, first of all, confirmed John's ministry by saying he ministered in the right context. Secondly. Because he wore the right clothing. Number three. John had the right credentials. We read this in verses 9 and 10. Jesus said. But what did you want to see a prophet? Yes I say to you and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written. Behold I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way before you. The father talking to the son. The dictionary defines credentials as, and I'm quoting, certified documents showing that a person has the right to exercise official power. With regard to John, what were those certified documents that confirmed John's ministry? Well, we've already talked about it, right? The Scriptures. The Scriptures. We've already mentioned Isaiah 40, verse 3. But in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And right here, Jesus repeats, he quotes Malachi 3 1, and basically says that this was written about John the Baptist, that John fulfilled this prophecy. Those are some very powerful credentials to be able to go to the word of God and show people look I'm the guy God spoke of look at here's how he what he prophesied about me the scriptures are my credentials and Jesus affirms it here but listen even though John had some pretty powerful credentials Jesus was not finished yet for he goes on to give John a glowing endorsement which becomes the last proof of the validity of John's ministry as if we needed anything else. And that would be that John had the right commendation. He ministered in the right context. He wore the right clothes. He had the right credentials. Finally, John had the right commendation. In verse 11 we read, Assuredly, I say to you, and that's underlined, I say to you. Jesus is commending John. Assuredly, I say to you among those born of women, There is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus starts off by saying in verse 11, Assuredly I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Let that statement sink in for a second. That's a pretty incredible thing to say. Jesus is saying that John the Baptist, listen, was greater than Moses, David, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. In fact, he is saying that he was greater, John was, than even the miracle-working prophets Elijah and Elisha. In fact, in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 41, we read, John performed no miracles, but everything that he spoke about Jesus was true. How could it be that a prophet who performed no miracles could be greater than those who did? Because we think Wow, miracles, that's, you're doing miracles, you're at the top, man. You are just the top person, you know, in the prophet category. Elijah and Elisha were some that did numerous miracles, and yet Jesus said John was greater than them. How could that be? Well, John the Baptist was great not for who he was or for what he did, but for the message he spoke. A message that introduced the Messiah to the world. Listen to me. The greatest ministries in God's eyes are not those that perform miracles, but those that faithfully and truthfully declare Jesus to the world. You don't have to be a miracle worker to be great in the kingdom. You don't have to be a miracle worker to be great in the eyes of God. You just be faithful. Make sure, like John, you speak of Jesus often, and everything you say about him is true, and you'll be great in the eyes of God. Jesus goes on to say in verse eleven, But he who was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. That's interesting. Just because they're John was greater than Moses, David, Elijah, Elisha, and so on. But he who was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. I mean, how is the least person in the kingdom of heaven greater than this greatest of all prophets? The kingdom of heaven is simply a term that refers to God's rule whether in heaven or upon the earth. For our intents and purposes, when you read this, he was leased in the kingdom of heaven. Think of those of the new covenant. Those of the new covenant. Because we are those who have received the king to rule over our lives. So the kingdom of heaven has come to the earth in our lives. All right? How was he who was leased in the kingdom of heaven greater than, than John. Well, not greater in position, not in character or ministry, but John was the herald of the king who announced the coming of the kingdom. Believers today are children of the king and heirs of the kingdom. Or in other words, the humblest child of the new covenant is greater than the than the greatest prophet of the old. That that's the idea. Say, John was a phenomenal man of God, but he only announced the kingdom. We are members of the kingdom. We are heirs with Jesus Christ of the kingdom. In verse 12 we read, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. You know, this is not an easy verse to interpret as to what Jesus is actually saying. Let me just tell you what I believe he's saying. I believe that what Jesus is saying is that the forces of evil are not going to sit idly by while the light of the kingdom drives out the darkness of this world. Not going to happen. Okay? Not going to happen. And while it's true that John the Apostle did open up his gospel with the words the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can't extinguish it, John goes on to say that God sent John the Baptist into the world to bear witness of the light. But where was John at this point in Matthew's gospel? He was in jail, right? Here's the thing. We know that the Scriptures say that the light of God has come into the world. Jesus Christ was the light. But He also gave us the truth of God, which becomes the light. And now when the truth of God is in us because Christ is in us, we become the light of the world, right? So the light... darkness cannot extinguish the light light is always more powerful than darkness but that doesn't mean that darkness is going to sit back idly by while we go ahead and dispel darkness in people's lives and bring them into the kingdom of light and life right the devil and his minions are going to attack the people of God I mean just because we we are told we're going to be victorious doesn't mean we're not going to suffer along the way at the hands of those who are in darkness and so yes from the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force because John came into the world to bear witness of the light and the world did what with him? They took him, I'm thinking of Herod in particular, imprisoned him where he was right now and eventually Herod was going to kill him. All because John represented the light. And I'll tell you this, the coming of the kingdom was met with violence back then as the kingdom was first presented and that violence against those who promote and proclaim. The kingdom continues to this day around the world as the people of God continue to be persecuted, imprisoned, and even martyred for telling the truth about Jesus Christ. But you know, Jesus warned us about this in chapter 10, didn't he? Didn't we read that in verses 27 and 8? He said, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is was able to destroy both soul and body in hell? Jesus said, look, what I tell you, you declare. Don't be afraid. You go ahead and declare boldly what I have told you to say to the world. I'll tell you what, folks. If John the Baptist was anything, he was bold. We've got to give him that, right? He was bold in proclaiming the message God gave him to preach. In fact, again in verse 7, Jesus said, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Look, John was no vacillator. I mean, he was not a man who let the prevailing philosophical and political winds of the world sway him from the message God gave him to preach. A message that was met with violence, imprisonment, and ultimately death at the hands of the world. And for this, John was commended by the Lord Jesus Christ as a faithful spokesman of kingdom truth. And it begs the question, what about us? I mean, how willing are we to stand up and speak out for Jesus no matter what? And you know, we live at a time when we're not taking our life into our hands by speaking the truth. Now, that may change. There may come a time when the people of God are physically persecuted imprisoned and maybe even martyred, we don't know, for speaking the truth. I mean, in John's day, that was exactly what he was facing. To speak out for Jesus... To come against the world, you were taking your life into your hands. Millions of Christians were were martyred in the first three centuries of the church's existence for standing up and speaking out for Jesus. Today, what's the worst we get? A little persecution, maybe somebody uh, belts us in the mouth. Okay, I've never had that experience, and I don't think anybody in here has had ridicule at least. All right, and yet so many of us are unwilling to even suffer some some verbal persecution for the cause of Christ. Not John. He was faithful. He was bold. In verse 13, Jesus said, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Understand that even though John the Baptist appears in the New Testament, he was actually the last prophet of the Old Testament period. He officially closed out the Old Covenant and passed the mantle to the messenger, capital M, of the new covenant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. John himself said when his disciples came to him and said, You know, what are you going to do? I mean, all the people are going to Jesus' disciples to be baptized. Nobody's coming to you anymore. I mean, are you upset about that, John? And John says, No, I told you I wasn't the bridegroom. He must increase, I must decrease. So the Old Covenant under John was fading out. The New Covenant under Christ was coming to the fore. John was the final prophet of the Old Testament period. Now we read in verses 14 and 15, And if you are willing to receive it, He is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now this presents a bit of a problem. Because in John chapter 1, remember how we studied this last week, how that when John started baptizing in the Jordan, so many people were going out to him, it created a real stir in Jerusalem. So much so it got the attention of the Jewish leadership who sent a delegation of Pharisees and scribes and priests out there to ask this colorful character, Who are you? And one of the things they asked him was, Are you Elijah? And what did John say? No, I'm not. And yet here, Jesus is saying, if you can receive it, this is Elijah, speaking of John. So how do we reconcile this apparent contradiction, Underlining the word apparent? Well, you remember in Luke chapter 1, how God sent the angel Gabriel to Zechariah, a very godly, elderly priest who was ministering in the temple at this time. And his wife Elizabeth were up in age, uh, elderly, and she was barren for all the years they were married. And, and I'm sure that when they were younger, they prayed for years for a child, but no child came. Well, maybe 30 years has passed since they prayed that prayer. They're, they're up there now. There's no chance that they can have a kid now. But Gabriel said, your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth is going to bear a son, and you shall call his name John. He goes on to say he is going to go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John was not Elijah, but he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now Jesus said, if you would have received John as truly the forerunner of the Messiah... Remember now, He's indicting them. We're going to talk about this more in a moment. But the idea is if Israel had received John and then ultimately Jesus at His first coming, John would have been the fulfillment of that prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 which said, I'm sending Elijah before the coming of the day of the Lord. Of course, God knew that Israel was not going to receive Jesus uh, at His first coming. Some of the people did, but the leadership had rejected Him out. So John did not become the fulfillment of that prophecy. Elijah is going to come though. Just as God promised to close out the Old Testament in Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6. Elijah is going to come before the Messiah returns to execute vengeance on his enemies. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 11. Elijah never died, you realize. He was taken to heaven in a fiery chariot. He's got a ministry yet to fulfill. All right, three Three and a half years, him and Moses, during the first half of the seven year tribulation period. But you see, Jesus is saying to them in, in Matthew 11, He's saying, look, if the nation, especially the leadership, would have received John and ultimately me as their Messiah, John would have been the fulfillment of that prophecy in Malachi and I would have brought the kingdom. But because... The leadership of Israel rejected John and me. The kingdom will not be coming at this time outwardly. So after Jesus confirmed John's ministry, as we have just seen, listen, he then condemned the multitude for their hard hearts of unbelief. And we'll finish with verses 16 to 19. Let's read them. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lamentations. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and winebibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. You see, after God sent John to proclaim the Messiah's coming, as was prophesied, and Jesus met all the criteria, and did all the miracles that God said Messiah would do, many still refused to believe. And in these verses, Jesus is saying, let me paraphrase. He said, you know, let me let me illustrate the response of these people. Here's what I compare it to. They're all like children sitting in the marketplace and saying to their friends, you know, hey, what gives? All right? We play happy music for you and you won't dance. So then we play sad music for you and you won't cry. I mean, what's the matter with you guys? Nothing seems to move you. And of course, the Lord was picking up on something everyone knew about. That in the marketplaces, the kids would have to wait for their parents as they shopped. And of course they talked and they visited and they were merchants, they sold, right? And so the kids had to keep themselves occupied while all this you know, was going on, right? The parents were busy doing their thing. So what did the kids do? They all got together and they played games. And two of the favorite games that came out of this period that they played was wedding and funeral. Because in that culture, those were very significant social events. A wedding was a very joyous time. The whole community celebrated. A funeral, a very sad time. The whole community mourned. And then Jesus makes the application. Let me paraphrase. John came mourning for the nation and denying himself all earthly comforts as he preached the message of repentance. But most of the people refused to mourn with John and repent for their sins. In fact, they called John a demon-possessed nut. Why? Because John would not Allow himself to be tainted by the world. He remains separate from the world. Guess what? When you seek to remain separate from the world, guess what the world's going to call you? A nut. All right. People said, "Look at this goofball out there, you know, crying out in the wilderness, wearing that outfit and all, and not, you know, eating anything but locusts and wild honey. Who does he think he is? You know? And look at how spiritually he thinks he's a he's a nutcase." What they were saying. They refused to mourn with John and repent. Jesus, on the other hand, came eating and drinking with the people in a joyful manner, giving them a message of forgiveness and hope, but they also refused to follow Jesus. In fact, they called him a glutton, a drunk, and a lowlife that hung around with the worst sinners in society. Couldn't make them happy. Nothing would move them. You know, it kind of reminds me, there's a kind of a parallel that I see today. You know, there are some people who are church shoppers. They're continually shopping for a church. And they'll go to one church where the pastor is, you know, kind of uh, solemn and serious in his preaching, and they'll leave going, Ah, uh, he was too depressing for me. So then they check out another church where the pastor is more upbeat and demonstrative when he preaches and they leave saying, Yeah, he's too hyper for me. There's no pleasing them, right? There's no pleasing them. Nothing moves them because in actuality they're looking for an excuse to dismiss the message. It's really all about dismissing the message. And so they focus on the messenger. I don't care if a guy is very solemn and serious when he preaches or if he dances around upstage here and is very theatrical. If they're both preaching the truth, forget the messenger, focus on the message. This is what's happening today though in the church in America. People are too focused on style and not substance. As a matter of fact, churches have been designed to woo people with style. Churches hire pastors and preachers who are very theatrical, who are very charismatic, who are good looking guys and dress really well. And when people walk into these facilities and see all the amenities and all the technology and the media and then they see the the preacher and he's very charismatic and he's strutting up and down the stage and he's very animated. They get taken in by that a lot of times. And they don't really focus on the message. The message becomes almost irrelevant. And then you have those people that no matter what church they go to, they're always dismissing it. Jesus responded by saying wisdom is justified by her children or by what it brings forth in a person's life you know as we bring it to a close you know, God said in the book of Genesis when he made the creation he said everything is going to bring forth after its kind right apparently he wasn't just talking agriculturally he was also talking philosophically Because the wisdom of this world produces children of darkness and evil. Whereas the wisdom of God produces children of light and righteousness. Wisdom is known by her children. If you're truly wise, it's going to produce what God wants. In fact, I'm going to end with a quote by one of my favorite uh, authors and commentators, Jim Boyce, who said, and I quote, Don't let that happen in your case. If you are rejecting Jesus Christ as your Savior, it is not because the gospel has not been taught or because thoughtful preachers have not defended it. It is because you do not want to repent of your sin and trust Christ instead of clinging to your own faulty character and weak works. You excuse yourself by pretending you are wise to do as you are doing, too wise to be taken in by any cheap religious claims. But you are not wise. If you think you are, you are the greatest of fools. The only wise course is to abandon any attempts to save yourself and repent of your sin and commit yourself to Jesus Christ. Jesus says in the last verse of this section, wisdom is proved right by her actions or her children. That is as true today as it ever was. And it is as true in spiritual matters as it is in the mundane matters of daily life. If you are a wise person, you will act rightly. And acting rightly means to turn from sin and follow Jesus. End quote. And I think that that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? You know, the world thinks it's so intelligent. I think of these um, Hollywood types. Okay, In fact, I just saw uh, an interview uh, with Bill Maher. He's the uh, radical uh, atheist and uh, just in your face kind of a Antagonist against the faith. Again, mocking Christianity, you know, mocking the Bible. How could anybody who has a brain, half a brain, believe the Bible? It's so full of errors and ridiculous, stupid statements, he said, and blah, blah, blah. And he's too intelligent to even think of giving any credence to a book like that, and so on and so forth, right? So wise, and there's so many like him in the world. You know, they drink from the wells of the world's wisdom and they think they are so with it. And yet, look at their lives. Look what is produced in their lives. The emptiness. The uh, loneliness. Just, uh, you know, it's so sad to see how these folks, their lives self-destruct. I think of Ernest Hemingway, who mocked Christians. Again, an atheist, a playboy. Uh, you know, he was loved to carouse and drink, and he was a boxer. He loved to get into bar fights. He just one of those, you know, men, like Hunter, a man's man, you know. And and he just would ridicule Christians and ridicule Christians. How could you be so stupid? And Christians would try to reason with him and try to witness to him, and he would dismiss it all. He'd say, you know, you Christians talk about judgment. You're so crazy. He said, you know, I'm living the way I lo- I'm. i wanting to live. Nothing bad's happened to me. Until about 10 years later when his world finally came crashing down and he took his favorite shotgun and stuck it in his mouth and ended his life. I'm telling you, the world can laugh and they can mock, but wisdom says if you are truly wise, you will get on your knees, you will repent of your sins, you will accept Jesus Christ. The scriptures are clear. Our faith is not based on empty promises or fantasy our faith is built on many infallible truths the Bible says atheists they think we look at the facts and we turn around and make a a blind leap into the darkness and actually they're the ones that do that when I look at the facts I see creation I see the hand of God the creation declares the glory of God I see how that we are fearfully and wonderfully made We look at the facts. We look at the evidence and say there is a creator. And even though we can't see him, we take a step in the direction that the evidence points, and that's called faith. But it's not blind faith. It's not empty faith. It's faith built on facts. And so Jesus is appealing to people's common sense. You know, you realize the Bible starts out in the beginning, God. It doesn't say, let me tell you, let me prove to you as we start this deal. Moses, right? Moses could have wrote, well, let me just, you know, before we, I start talking about these things, let me just prove to you why we know God exists. He didn't do that, right? He just said in the beginning, God. You know why he didn't try to prove the existence of God? Because he knew God made us smart enough to realize if you have creation, you have to have a creator. It's just common sense. And Jesus is saying, look, common sense says, as you look at the evidence, John is the guy God sent. I'm the Messiah, he promised. I'm the Savior of the world. Now, you can reject that wisdom of God and embrace the wisdom of the world, but it's going to give birth to many evil and hurtful things in your life and cause you to be separated from God for eternity. True wisdom embraces the facts, gets on their knees, and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, next week, as we kind of continue on in this idea, how Jesus is condemning those who were so hard-hearted, he talks about prophecy and gives us, I think, some very important things to look at or to contemplate with regard to prophecy. And so we'll look at that next week and um is a very important section you know proving john validating his ministry was a validation of christ's ministry and now what are you going to do with jesus the leaders of israel they had a decision two thousand years ago they made the wrong one but what are you going to do with jesus right now as you've heard the facts father we thank you that you have not left us in darkness That, Lord, you have given us your light, your truth, and if we walk in your truth, we'll never stumble in darkness. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us a faith that's built on many infallible proofs. And the world can mock, and the world can ridicule us, the world can even kill us. It doesn't change the fact that as we have embraced the wisdom of God, the truth of God, the gospel, in Jesus Christ, it has given birth to a new life in our hearts right now. And someday will lead to a new life forever in your kingdom. And so, Lord, thank you. We thank you that you've opened our eyes to your truth. We pray, Lord, for those this morning in this room or who will be listening on the radio to this message someday who are still in darkness, who are closing their eyes. We pray you would, Lord, reason with them, that they would open their eyes by your grace and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.